Hey there, I'm Kyle Trigstad, politics editor for Bloomberg Government. And I'm Greg Giroux, senior elections reporter for Bloomberg Government. Check out our podcast, Down Ballot Counts. Each week, Greg and I will be breaking down all of those down ballot elections that make up the fight for the U.S. Congress. Listen and subscribe to Down Ballot Counts from Bloomberg Government wherever you get your podcasts. From Washington, this is Talking Tax. I'm your host, Amanda Icone. The safety net that audit firms use to monitor the quality of their own work is about to undergo a dramatic shift. Known as quality management, the international rules are foundational to not just how firms do their work, but the safeguards they have in place to make sure that work is done consistently in offices across the globe. That includes how they select clients, how they decide which partners to assign to those clients, even the responsibilities of the firm's top executives. And regulators here in the U.S. have been paying close attention. The Public Company Accounting Oversight Board has launched its own project to update similar quality control standards here. That has firms with a global reach worried that they may have to comply with two different sets of guidelines. Regulators aim to avoid that, including Tom Seidenstein, who chairs the International Auditing and Assurance Standards Board. Tom joined me to talk about the board's work, how long audit firms have to prepare for the new rules, and how it's working with the U.S. audit regulator to make sure that those rules don't collide. Our rules, our standards apply in more than 130 countries, either countries through the regulatory bodies or accountancy bodies either formally adopt just all of the words in our standards whole hog or they incorporated sort of it through a convergence process. So in the United States, that happens to be one of the countries that uses our standards. And so in some form or another, they will filter into the U.S. for, for, for private companies. For public companies, as you know, those standards are the ones set by the PCAOB. Well, I want to dive into that in much greater detail in a minute. But first, I want you to set the, the, the stage for us here, Tom. When we're talking about quality controls or a system of quality management, these are really foundational to how the firms operate. B- big picture, what is the purpose of these standards as they exist today. Yeah, so if you think about it, there's lots of things that go into helping to give the general public more confidence in that audits will lead to a good product. One is is the the quality of training, education of the auditors themselves. Second is the ethical requirements by which auditors operate. Third is all the standards of like how are you going to actually conduct an audit. But the other thing is, is if you think about sort of the environment in which firms actually operate and sort of manage their quality or in the old parlance, control their quality. So if you think about it, our quality management standards are sort of how firms continue to do quality management and ensure that they're always improving themselves, making themselves better, and sort of making sure that the ultimate product is great beyond just your compliance with the standards. And, you know, if you were going to at a financial institution, to some extent, this is like your risk management process. Like, how do we make sure that things are within our tolerances for risk? But in the audit world, where 
auditors are out there trying to serve the public interest and put out a really good engagement, this is how they take steps to make sure that the likely outcome is a really high quality engagement. I like the comparison to risk managing, risk management. You can't control every factor, but you have a framework um, to, to try and end up with the best result possible. You, you, the board just finalized new rules relating to how firms manage their quality just last month in September, what's the biggest change in how you want firms to approach their own systems, their own internal controls as it relates to quality? Well, I think we're thinking about everything is about ultimately producing a high quality product. And so the biggest, just think about it, it's more than symbolic that we have changed the term quality control to quality management. And really this terminology is like control, I think of more of like a compliance function. But in fact, management is sort of this continuous process. And really, the passage of the standards really an evolution from a traditional, more linear approach of quality control. Our standards are meant to facilitate an integrated and iterative process to manage the quality of the firm's engagement when you when what it's applicable. So if I think about the things that we've tried to build into this standard is greater accountability of firm leadership, an improved focus on culture at the firm to drive quality from all levels, top to bottom and bottom upwards, a continuous improvement mindset through required monitoring and remediation. And this is sort of a sense what we call the feedback loop. And communication that goes throughout the firm and also to external stakeholders, not only the the firm in which you're doing the engagement with, but also the external stakeholders as appropriate. Tom, I wonder if, if, I'm going to pause you there. I wonder if you could provide an example. You know, some of the firms here in the U.S. put out what they refer to as audit quality reports every year where they talk about staffing levels and engagement practices and and they, they talk about their PCOB inspection findings if they're a PCOB registered firm. They're voluntary reports. There's no mandatory requirement for that here in the U.S. Is that the kind of thing that you're looking for when you, when you talk about external communications? Those would be examples that would be in compliance. Now, I think our standard may drive greater uh, sort of harmonization on how that's done. You could focus, you could pin on what our standards requirements are in terms of the components of the standards. But yes, those are very much along the lines. In many countries, those reports are required. Um, and our stand, standard sort of gives a little bit of structure to how, how transparency reporting could happen. But interestingly enough, when, when they're not required by law and the engage, as it relates to firms with engagements with public entities, they have to now communicate with those charged with governance on how their system of quality management is operating. So they have to provide an assessment of whether or not it's operating effectively. Is that the idea that they would evaluate their own performance? We don't explicitly say the form by which the communication should occur, but it's important that that communication occurs. And, you know, you could imagine that occurring between the firm, the audit firm, and for example, the chair of the audit committee. And then there could be a discussion about that, which we think is really important for continuing to put 
water quality front and center of the discussion. And it's uh, highlight for me, I mean, how big of a change is this from the, the, the current standards for quality control? For some firms, they have gone a good step of the way, bit of the way to where we're heading towards. But for others, this will be significant change uh, around the world. And, you know, the fact that we're codifying many of what is perceived as best practices, root cause analysis, for example, rapid remediation, uh, accountability in, in both at the leadership level at the firm and with the engagement partner. I think that's a big step forward. So what's driving the changes? Why now? Why, why such... Um really a, a, a change in thinking you, from going the, from the check the box mentality to this idea of you're constantly trying to improve. So the existing quality control standards are outdated. I think they came in, I think the U.S. was first uh, at the time, building off of when the PCAOB was formed and existing standards. And so, you know, Lots of thinking has happened in the world of risk management and the expectations of a firm to meet the public interest over the last two decades. So just the sheer age. Best practice has arisen. So the whole focus on on root cause analysis, that's been very much ingrained in sort of uh, risk management policies in different sectors. And so audit is no different than that. And then I think... Remember, standards don't come overnight. People have often actually accused uh, accounted and audit standard centers for being slow. And it, I don't think slow is the right term here. But for about five years ago, the IAASB had this whole discussion and they had an invitation come and on what they could do to improve audit quality. And this is one area that clearly emerged from the process. So you know, these standards of five years in the making have been through really rigorous due process, uh, lots of iterations, and, and, and also what's relevant to the United States is involvement with U.S. standard setters in the United States. The PCAOB has said uh, they've had representation on our, our task force associated with this in an observer capacity. Uh, one of our board members was the technical director at the AICPA. You mentioned that the PCAOB, the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, is working on a similar project here in the U.S. You and PCOB Chairman Bill Dunkey have both said that the goal is to have standards that are aligned. What do you mean by that? And why does it matter that these standards should not be dramatically different? So... I'd say two reasons on it. First of all, the audit profession and is is a global profession, and many of the networks operate globally. Uh, and and indeed, capital flows globally. So investors who are investing, whether it's in India or or China or the European Union, should have confidence in the external reporting in the same way. And those that are helping to ensure confidence and provided assurance in external reporting in the same way. So I think consistency of any regime is important. Uh, and so operating under mo- multiple regimes would be costly. So the second thing is, is that if you have two fundamentally different systems of quality management, then it actually could divert attention to the core of it. You're so busy trying to prepare to comply with a system of regulation and 
you're giving conflict, potentially conflicting messages. It's really tough to create a culture around it. So to the extent that we got it right, and remember, we've consulted for five years. So I, I, our expectation is that we got it reasonably right on this and that it will be a major step forward and that it should work in all these 130 other markets around the world. The hope is that it provides a pretty strong basis, having had significant comment throughout the process from U.S. stakeholders for a U.S. system. That's not to say everything has to be word for word. They have to be broadly consistent. And in the United States, there's a possibility, as in many jurisdictions, to layer on additional requirements if it's appropriate for this jurisdiction. How often do you or your staff at the IAASB talk to the PCOB? I mean, you mentioned they had representation on your task force and that there's a member of the AICPA on your board. But how closely are, are you talking, communicating about what you're finding, the thought process that went into the way something was written or the goals behind the standards? You know, how, how closely are you really working together on these reforms? Well, they, in terms of quality management on every discussion that we had, which our task forces are the key engines of our standards development, there was participation by uh, PCAOB or uh, observers. So they, they were involved in almost every phase of development. So it was quite intense, particularly as it picked up towards the end. I, I want to dive a little bit deeper into some areas you mentioned earlier, ethics. Talk about ethics. How does that factor in for auditors? And and, and how do you measure ethics or, or guard against unethical behavior? I mean, how, how does this standard move the needle as it relates to ethics and, and independence for that matter? So the standard specifically doesn't deal with ethics per se. And my colleagues at the IESBA, the International Ethics Standards Board for Accountants, really deal with that. But we are very clear in the standards on how those two sets of standards fit together and made sure that they're very consistent. In particular, on things like our engagement quality review is an example where we instituted a mandatory cooling off period of two years the ethics board is dealing with their sets of standards uh, to make sure that's consistent with their objectivity requirements as well. So we work very much in tandem with the ethics board. We we ref- we have lots of references in our standards. That, you know, our expectations is that you, you're complying with your, the ethical standards um, as you apply our standards as well. You also mentioned leadership, the importance of tone at the top. You, you have written that, that the new standards enhance the ex- expectations and accountability of firm leadership. I wonder how so. What, what are you asking of firm leaders to do differently? Well, we, we are actually saying that they must take responsibility and appoint people that have a role of monitoring and dealing with remediation issues uh, as it relates to quality management. Uh, so we're not very specific that we say who it has to be because different verbs are structured differently. But the point is, is that it ultimately, the buck must stop at the top a little bit with firms management and also at the engagement level with the engagement partner. You know, there is real accountability and the standard is about driving accountability for quality. What about independent oversight? That's an idea that the PCOB has asked for feedback on do the new standards address that? 
No, uh, that's a, I think our standard is meant to operate in a number of different oversight and governance models within the firm. It's really about how a firm manages it within itself. Oversight relates to governance. Um, you know, I think different countries have different views on on how firms should be overseen and what's appropriate in the jurisdiction. Uh, and I think our standard operates under all of those. And, uh, you know, we, we, as I said earlier, our standards apply in 130 different countries. So it's really difficult for us to wade into those specific governance questions. You mentioned how this impacts, in particular, global network firms and their operations in different countries. I want to I ask in particular about China. Investors in the U.S. are increasingly concerned about the quality of auditing coming out of the mainland and the reliability of financial information that Chinese companies are reporting. How would these rules affect, for example, the work of auditors in China? Uh, I, I'd be hard-pressed to talk about specific jurisdictions, but our hope is is that two th- you'll have sort of two tendencies here. As it relates to the firm itself, the requirements will rise, raise the quality of commitment to quality management in the firm. So I think across the board, we hope for improvement. We also think that this is going to provide a mechanism for f- the networks of firms, particularly as you go to major international networks, to, to, to help I don't know if the word is harmonize, but synchronize requirements and help out firms within their network to really focus on quality management. So I, I, I'm hopeful that as it relates to any, any engagements that are operating under this new system of quality management will provide some form of greater assurance or confidence to investors of all likes, regardless of where uh, financial statements are coming from. So what's next? How long do firms have before they must implement these this suite of new standards? There are three standards again, and I, we, we point to the key date is December 15th, 2022. And they operate, all three operate a little bit differently. But the big thing to know is that the system of quality management needs to be in place by that date. Not up and running and effective and everything, all the bells and whistles have been run for a while, but has to be in place by December 15, 2022. So it's about two years to get ready for this. And as I said, for many, for many firms, this will be a major undertaking. And since our standard also recognizes that networks across border could have a role in this, you know, we expect there's going to be some preparation from that, that regard. You know, then once it's up and running, then there is going to be a point in which that firms will have to do some evaluation of how it's up and running and whether they need to take steps to remediate and improve. And, you know, for the major milestones, it has to be within a year, but we would expect probably some work being done beforehand. What we've learned so far, too, is that firms aren't waiting two years to get this running. It's no secret where the direction we're doing, everything we do is transparent. All our papers are out there. Many firms have been already working on getting their systems up and running and training people and beginning the discussion about what this means in terms of how firms are going to operate and changes that are required. That was Tom Seidenstein, who chairs the International Auditing and Assurance Standards Board. 
You can find up-to-the-minute news on the latest tax and accounting developments at our website, news.bloombergtax.com. That website, once again, is news.bloombergtax.com. And if you have any thoughts about today's podcast, reach out to us on Twitter. We use the handle at tax. That's at T-A-X. Talking Tax is produced by me, Amanda Icone, and David Schultz. Kathy Larson is our editor. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks for tuning in to Talking Tax. From Washington, I'm Amanda Icone. When it comes to the environment, there are, let's say, a lot of moving parts. Climate change, air pollution, water pollution, chemical contamination, endangered species, renewable energy, superfund, asbestos, recycling, lead, mold, radon, stormwater. Nitrogen. That's where Parts Per Billion comes in. Join me, David Schultz, on the Parts Per Billion podcast every Wednesday to sort out everything that's going on in the environment, from the courts to Congress to your backyard. Download and subscribe to Parts Per Billion wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for listening.